Well, with a view to the help and uh, blessing of God, let's turn again then to that chapter where we were in the morning. And that's in the second letter of Peter. And uh, we were considering aspects of the last days in the morning. And um, in verse 10, there's a focus on the very last day, which is the day of the Lord. And we read in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And just to set that a little uh, more firmly in its context, let's just read Verses 10 to 13 again. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise or roaring, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we According to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And uh, you'll remember uh, from the morning that the theme of the chapter is, of course, the second coming of the Lord Jesus and the promise in the scripture, not just a prophecy, but a promise from God that that second coming will in fact take place. And the second coming isn't to be viewed as a standalone event, as it were, but one of a series of events that occur on the last day, including the resurrection of the dead, the destruction of the entire cosmos, the renewal of the cosmos, and the final judgment of all the living and all the dead. So the personal second advent or second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ puts all these events into motion. And so when he is talking here and when God through the Holy Spirit is telling us here regarding the second coming of Christ, we're to view it in that context, in the context of judgment, destruction and renewal. And of course, as I highlighted in the morning, the apostle is urging us all to have the correct view of these things, the correct view of his coming of the judgment and destruction and renewal of the cosmos. First, to make sure that we believe it by exercising faith in the word of God, which reveals it. So that's the first thing. And that's really what we were looking at this morning. And I have something more to say about that tonight. So we're called to believe it. 
The second thing is that we're called to look for it in the sense of hoping for it, expecting it. And then third, we're to live our lives in the light of it in a particular way. The thought of these events, chief of which is the return of the Lord, is something that should move us to live in a particular way. And to strive, he says, with diligence to be found uh, without spot and blameless. Living lives that are distinguished by holy conduct, as we'll see a bit later on. Now, as I said, we saw in the morning how uh, we need to believe these things. That Christ will indeed return and that that return will be followed by judgment. Now, Peter goes on uh, to describe in some detail uh, the events that follow. Now, not all of them by any means, but he does go into unusual detail in connection with the destruction of the cosmos. And he mentions in a little detail, too, the renewal of the cosmos which follows. Everything dissolved and then everything renewed. As we have in the book of the Revelation, behold, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I make all things new. So the Christ who by his word brought all things into being is the one who will dissolve all these things and once again bring them into being, reconstituting nothing less than an entire cosmos. And the one who was well able to do it first time around is the one who is, who is well able to do it second time around. Now, as I say, he, he really focuses in on that, the destruction of the world and the construction of another one. He doesn't go into the other events that characterized the last day, but the rest of the scripture does. And without diverting too much from where we are, I think it may help us to focus in a little better if we try and take in an overview of what the rest of the Bible teaches in connection with the last day. The last days as such are a long period of time. In fact, you can say effectively that the last days stretch from the first coming of Christ to the second coming. And there are certain behavioral trends that manifest themselves as these last days progress. But these last days culminate in the last day. That's the one that ushers in the final state, uh, culminating itself in heaven and hell. For one group, the everlasting Sabbath of God, everlasting rest. For the other group, a place that's characterized in Scripture as a place where there is no rest at all, either day or night. It is absolutely without Sabbath. Now, we saw in the morning, and it's emphasized here too, that this day of the Lord, when it comes, it comes suddenly and unexpectedly. We're told that it comes as a thief in the night. Doubtless, like the day on which Sodom was destroyed, as we saw in the morning, and the day on which 
The flood began when the fountains of the great deep were opened up. This day will begin like any other. Just as the sun rose over Sodom, so we're told in Genesis 19, so the sun will rise this day too. And again, as the Lord Jesus told, in connection with both the flood and Sodom, people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, and planting and building, and marrying and being given in marriage until the very day on which the judgment of the Lord actually fell. And sadly, of course, that judgment will find people unprepared. Uh, Some unprepared anyway. Of course, there will be some people eating and drinking, buying and selling and planting and building, but they're watching and they're waiting for the return of the Lord. There are other people eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building and getting married and so on, but they're not watching, not waiting for the return of the Lord. These are the foolish virgins who have no oil in their lamp. The others are the wise ones and they have oil in their lamps. And even when they're asleep, they are still waiting for the return of the Lord. All our lives, um, in many respects, are ordinary. We all do the same things, by and large. Of course, those of you who are not Christians will have aspects of your behavior that are not true in the Christian's life. That's undoubtedly so, but we all do these things. We all get up in the morning, we wash, we get changed, we eat, we drink, we buy, we sell, and so on. But the fact of the matter is that some of you are doing all that while you are watching and waiting for the return of the Lord. Others are doing these things without any eye on the Lord whatsoever. So when these people are eating and drinking and buying and selling, that's the Lord Jesus' way of saying that that's all they're doing. I mean, that's their lives. And sometimes they wonder about their lives, maybe as you do. What is the point of getting up and going to bed and eating and drinking? What is the point? It is a good question, and without God, I can't answer that question for you. I mean, you answer it as best you can yourself. Many people conclude that there is no point, and to be honest, I well understand that. But of course, if the Lord has made you, that's very, very different. And if you understand that there is a point and a purpose to your life, you're eating and drinking and you're buying and selling and everything you do will be different. Even in your eating, you will give thanks to God and you will eat to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do, as Paul says, unto the glory of God. So sadly, when the judgment comes like a thief in the night, it will find many people unprepared. And in that connection... Just in the passing, I I want to remind you that although strictly speaking, historically, we are moving forward to the judgment, there is another sense in which the judgment uh, stretches out its own hand and comes into our own lifetime. And it does that, of course, by means of death. Death is the great event that links you at the point of that death to the judgment that may still be 2,000 years in the future, for all I know, or 5,000 years. I don't know. No one knows the day nor the hour of Christ's return. But the single great event that links you to it is death, simply because the event of death and how you are at death determines how you will be found at the judgment seat. Those who die righteous will be righteous forevermore. Those who die unrighteous will be unrighteous forevermore. 
die clean, renewed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you stay clean and renewed forevermore. Die filthy in your own sin, unregenerate, not born again, and that is how you remain into the endless ages of eternity. So you can only prepare for the judgment seat while you live in this world. You haven't got however long it takes until the judgment seat. You've only got however long you live because the way you die is the way you will be. After all, when we all die individually, we go immediately to heaven or to hell. The fact that we are many years later brought out of there to stand formally before God and publicly receive our sentences neither here nor there. It's not as though on the great day of judgment anyone's going to be surprised in that respect. All those who have died are either reserved in chains until the formal judgment is pronounced or else are already experiencing the blessedness of God. I mean, if you consider the multitudes of the saved tonight in glory, if you consider the multitudes of the lost in hell, none of them are confused about their destiny when the day of judgment comes. They know. Of course they know. It's only us who live who may be in some kind of doubt about that, but at the point of death, those doubts are removed. So remember, Yes, indeed, we are going forward to the judgment, but it comes towards us in the event of our death. And the only way, of course, in which you can prepare for that judgment is by preparing for death. And the way in which you prepare for death is by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to prepare for that. Um, You've got insurance policies for who knows what. And who knows what it may cost. It may cost a lot to insure your car or your house. But are you actually insured yourself? Is that not the most important thing to insure? And to have assurance that you have insurance? To be absolutely certain that you have repentance and faith. And that you are prepared to die. When Amos says in his prophecy in chapter 8... Prepare to meet thy God. He is effectively saying prepare to die. And if you die prepared, you will meet God without shame on your face. And of course that reminds us too, that just as the judgment day will come on the world like a thief in the night, so when it puts its tentacles into our own lives personally, it also comes like a thief in the night. Judgment day is a thief in the night. Death is a thief in the night. Not always. Sometimes he comes close and he leaves a calling card. And he says that he will be visiting again within a week's time. Some people know it's time up. But very often, death comes like a thief in the night. All the more reason to make sure, my friend, that you are prepared for it. Prepare to meet thy God. So then, the last day will certainly come, and it begins with the return of Christ himself. As I mentioned in the morning, and as the Bible says, that return is similar in some respects to his departure. When he ascended into glory, there was a visible aspect to his ascent. The disciples saw him rise 
Now, some people, mockers, like we read of here in chapter 3, scoffers, they've always been around. They scoff everything. They say, well, did, did he shoot through the cosmos? Did he go to the outer regions of outer space? The answer to that is no. The follow-up is don't be so ridiculous and don't be so absurd. Heaven is not something you reach by travelling like a rocket forever. It's another dimension, which is reached simply by passing through a portal, that's all. You, You pass from the one to the other. Einstein himself spoke about wormholes through which you could conceivably pass from one universe to another. And all these things, people are just groping after what God's got already. People think they're innovative, discovering new things. God's always been there first. You pass into heaven by passing through a portal from one dimension of existence into another. But nonetheless, the the disciples were allowed to see the Lord rise visibly before he was taken out of their view to convey to them the idea of ascension, to convey to them the idea that he's being raised up to a higher plane, to convey the idea that he's being brought home into the heaven of heavens where God resides in the fellowship of his people. God doesn't need a residence. But where his people are going to be, he needs to reside. And that is the heaven of heavens, where he resides in the fellowship of his people. And the Bible tells us that in the same manner in which he left, so he will come. He will come visibly. Of course, his first coming was visible too, in the sense that he was born an infant, a child. There's another sense in which that was incognito. Few people saw him. Fewer still recognized him. But Jesus himself tells us that in his second coming, you don't need to speculate. Because, he says, as the lightning shoots from one end of heaven to the other and lightens up the whole heaven, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And as the scripture says, Every eye shall see him. The manifestation of his coming will be visible to everyone on the inhabited earth. As well as being visible, it is audible. Now, I think the Lord Jesus Christ's ascension after his death was audible too. He was raised in heaven, uh, to heaven, with both hands extended in the posture of a benediction. And I would personally find it easier to believe that he pronounced a benediction and blessed his people in the event of departing. Uh, in, in a way, it's effectively the Lord saying that I leave you with my blessing and my blessing will continue with you always, even to the end of the world. But when he returns, well, few heard that, but when he returns... We're told that he returns with the shout of an archangel and with the voice of a trumpet. So just as it's the case that every eye shall see him, so every ear shall hear him. And I suppose it will be fair to say that in most cases, the world will hear the coming Christ before they see him. It is the noise that will come into their ears before the sight comes into their eyes. And of course too, as well as being visible and audible, the scriptures emphasize that his return will be glorious. 
as Christ said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the holy angels with him. Now, of course, that was very different from his first coming too. There is nothing more humbling, nothing more humiliating than to be born uh, where the animals are and to have a feeding trough as your crib. But into such destitution, the Lord was born. A picture from the very beginning of the fact that people have no room for the Lord. Not just in the inn, but in the world itself and in every human heart. But when he returns the second time, it is in his glory. And that glory will not just be seen, but recognised. There is a difference. We could all see a glory, but not recognise who possesses it. But the astonishing thing is that when the glory of the Lord is revealed in his second coming, everybody will know who he is. Now you say, well, how will they know who he is? Well, they just will. They just will know who he is. In Revelation 6, which we read earlier, we're told that the people who see the coming of the Lord will desire to be hidden uh, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The Christ will be known. It will be a kind of spiritual intuition that will be bestowed on everybody when the Lord comes. It is most certainly him. And then this coming of the Lord will be followed by a resurrection. A resurrection that comes in two stages. Paul tells us that first of all, he says, the dead in Christ will rise. Now that's a wonderful thought. I mean, suppose he were to come tonight. Before we are raised up to glory, if we are Christians, those who are dead in Christ already shall rise first. I don't have to go time, I don't have time right now to go into how the Lord raises the body, how he reconstitutes the unique DNA of everybody and raises them as they are or were. Can't do that. But the fact is that the dead in Christ shall rise first and their renewed spirits will be reunited to their renewed bodies. Separated maybe for thousands of years, Abraham has not seen his body since it was buried in the cave of Machpelah. But when every body is reconstituted and renewed, it will meet the renewed soul. And at last, body and soul will be perfect, both conformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought, Christian? To you it's a wonderful thought. It must be. To see him as he is. To be like him. To be like him in body as well as in spirit. After that resurrection of the Lord's people, those who are alive belonging to the Lord they shall be raised up. 
lifted up, we are told, as Christ was lifted up in his ascension. And Paul says that in the process of lifting, they are changed. Not going through the process of death, but Paul puts it this way. He says that our mortality is swallowed up by immortality. Our corruption is swallowed up of incorruption. We are changed, he says. We shall not all die. Those of us who live will be changed. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, changed, just like Elijah was changed when he was raised up living into heaven. Just as Enoch was changed when he was raised up alive into heaven. So we shall be changed. You know, you can tell from the way that Paul speaks about these things that he almost wishes that he was going to go through that experience himself. Although um, he would gladly accept leaving right now and being with Christ, as he says, which is far better. Although, he says, I know that for me to live longer is better for you. And so be it. But there was something in him when he said, we who are alive will be caught up to meet with the Lord in the air. You feel he puts it that way. He doesn't say those who are alive, but we. I think he puts it that way because he identifies so much with every Christian. And he identifies so much with that experience himself. To be raised up, not to taste of death, but just to be transformed like that in the twinkling of an eye, again, into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. A wonderful thought. And so when the dead rise and the living are raised, the Christ who has come will take the whole of that church back into glory with him. But the unbelievers... They rise too. But they die first. The return of Christ means the death of all who do not believe. But that is almost instantaneously followed by the resurrection. And that's a different resurrection, friends. It's a different resurrection. They, they don't rise with incorruptible bodies, but with the same corruptible bodies with which they were laid in the grave. And they are led by the angels to the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you will all understand that when the whole cosmos is brought before the judgment seat of Christ, there's no debate as to who is who. It's not as though everyone appears the same and there's a judgment and then everybody knows. No the group are immediately split into those on the right hand and those on the left. You can tell by looking at them who they are. You can tell by looking at them who they are. It's written in their faces. It's in their clothing. It's, it's very evident who they are. They know who they are themselves. The judgment seat is only a confirmation of what they already know. And it's only then that the destruction of the cosmos is completed. Now, I say completed because I think it already begins when the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. Because, as far as I understand it, and some of these things I will say so when I'm just not sure about things, and I'm not sure about this, but I think the Bible does indicate that the people who are living at the time 
will see signs of the decay of the cosmos when the Lord himself is returning. We're told that the stars fall towards the earth. Now, of course, you've got to remember that um, this is imagery. Uh, the, the Bible says things like the sun rises, the sun goes down. Um, that doesn't mean that it's geocentric in its view. I mean, do you, do you say that yourself? The sun rose today. What does that say about your belief? Nothing at all. It's just the way we speak from perspective. Now, the same is true in the Bible. When it says that the stars fall to earth, that's how it appears, that they are all descending. Uh, everything seems to be in meltdown. There is something visibly happening in the cosmos. And in fact, Peter tells us that it's not just visible. He says that there is a great roaring sound. It's the sound of a conflagration. It's the sound of a cosmic fire, as we'll see in a moment. But the point I'm just making is that this destruction of the cosmos appears to begin while the very events of the Lord's return and the rising of the people are actually ongoing. The people on the earth are aware that the earth is coming to its end. Now, the agent of this destruction is actually fire. The first time God destroyed the world, he used water. And he brought the water back, as I said in the morning, in its subterranean channels. I was mentioning in the morning, just for the benefit of those who aren't here, that God filled the world with water. At the point of creation, it was entirely covered with water. Um, he then brought it into its subterranean channels, and with the flood, it spurted up again, and it went down again. And as 71% of the world's surface is covered with water, there are three times as many uh, gallons of water under the crust as there are on top of it. Three times as, as, as much. But that ignores the fire. Under that is a mantle that is molten, hot. Now and again, bits burst through that remind us that there's something, something seething under there that God has kept in control from the beginning. But like everything else that's kept under control, God will loosen it. And that's what's being taught here. First, in connection with the heavens, we're told in verse 12 that we are looking for now, I'll come to this in a minute, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's a strange expression, by the way, that we are hastening the coming of the day of God. How can that be? Well, we'll see. But anyway, we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements melt with fervent heat. So the heavens here dissolve. The Greek word is loosen. And the elements, were told, melt with the fervency of the heat. And the impression that it gives upon the earth is of the whole thing passing away. A dissolution of the cosmos itself. But the focus, he says, is on the earth. And he does focus on the earth. It's not just the heavens that are dissolved. He tells us, too, that the earth, this is halfway through verse 10, that the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, for us, it's the earth that matters, of course. People often say, well, 
you know, the Earth is nothing. It's one little planet. It's, it's so minuscule as not really even worthy to be called a speck of dust. That's actually true. I mean, it's not, it is not a speck of dust in comparison with the size of the cosmos. And people say, well, are we really that important? Well, yes and no. There's a sense in which we definitely feel our smallness when we contemplate the universe. But is it the case that the Earth is unique? Is it the case that the Earth is, is actually something special in the universe? Yes is the answer to that question. It is absolutely the case that it is unique and that it is different. Cosmologists are now of the view that it may well be possible that the Earth and our solar system is in the centre of an expanding universe. The Bible does say that God stretches out the heavens. It's interesting that they say that, because certainly spiritually and morally, and in terms of God's creative design, the earth is very much at the centre. So why the rest then? Why these endless millions and billions of miles? Why these countless millions and billions and trillions of stars? Well, there's quite a simple reason for that in a way. I mean, if, if you were going to create a world and going to create people in your own image and likeness, and if you were going to stamp upon them from the moment of their beginning your own immensity, your own eternity, your own magnitude and your greatness and power, how else would you establish such a, such a thing but by creating a an almost infinite stretch-out universe that was absolutely and utterly mind-boggling. And is that not how it works? It is how it works. When I look up into the heavens which thine own fingers framed, the, the sun and the moon and the stars which were by thee ordained, then say I, what is man that he remembered is by thee? Or what the son of man that thou so kind to him should be. The whole universe reminds us of God's immensity and his eternity. The sheer power of God. The sheer size of God. The absolute greatness and magnitude of God. And we boast in ourselves. We boast in ourselves. But the earth, we're told, shares the same destruction as the universe. We're told that its elements melt. It's dissolved first and its elements melt. Now, the elements are the basic building blocks of the universe. The, the Greek word, word means the basic building blocks of anything. So you could use this word element of the letters A, B, C, D and so on, which constitute the basic building blocks of language, or one, two, three, which are the basis of numerology. But the elements here are the chemical elements that constitute the universe that God made. Now these elements combine, and God has ordered their combination. Some of you will probably remember from school your periodic table of the elements. These elements are the base elements. They, they're the elements you find that consist of only one kind of atom. Now God combines these. For example, you have the base elements of oxygen and hydrogen. 
but they are combined by God into water. He oversaw that combination, and it is for our good and for our welfare. But when this conflagration begins, all these bindings of these elements are torn apart, and everything is reduced to its original element. Not only that, but all these elements melt with the sheer fervency of the cosmic heat. Now, people are grasping after all these things. People are astonished at the heat that they find in the universe. And they're always speculating about where it came from and, and so on. I spoke in the morning about the pinhead exploding and contracting, exploding and contracting. But God is the source, like I said in the morning, of all this energy. And just as he used intense heat to make the universe, he uses intense heat to break the universe. Heat, heat like we can't imagine. It's, it's, this, by the way, is what causes uh, cosmologists to err in things to do with the age of the universe and things like that. They, they think that the processes that work today are the processes that have always worked. Now and again, their paradigms fall apart. They're already thinking that perhaps, after all, the speed of light at the point of the Big Bang was infinitely greater than it is now. Well, a creationist would have said, yes, we would have told you so, because you have to factor into the beginning of things the sheer miraculous power of God. Nobody denies the things that science has proved true. The rate at which lead decays into uranium or potassium into argon or carbon into carbon-14 and so on, nobody denies these things. But what we do assert is that the beginnings of things are different. The speed at which things happen the heat, the intensity, because God did it all. And God uses the heat he wants and works at the speed he wants. Do you think God is limited by the speed of light? Absolutely not. We, well, those who are engaged in the field know that at the center of the Earth's core, the temperature is about five and a half thousand Celsius, which is the same as the surface of the sun. A bolt of lightning is five times hotter than the surface of the sun. A bolt of lightning is about the same heat as the core of the earth. The core of the sun is 15 million degrees Celsius. These numbers are mind-boggling. That heat is mind-boggling. All that is held in check, not by laws. Who made them? But by the God of these laws, God holds it all in check. God holds the molten mass of the earth in check. God holds the sun in check. Its growth or lack of growth in check. The sun and the moon and the stars which were by thee ordained in their place to function exactly in the way that God wants them to function. And when God gives the word, all that is unleashed. Every atom in the universe, every atom. Think of the power in an atom. Think of the number, how can we? The number of atoms in the universe. Think of the unleashing of that power at his command and will. So that the God who brought all these things into existence now unleashes the power in them and says, burn. And they burn. The whole universe does. By the way, this fire of which the Bible speaks here is not a natural process. The end of the world is not going to come through 
climate change. It's not going to come through nuclear holocaust. It's going to come when it is triggered expressly by the word of God at the point at which the whole cosmos is destroyed. The earth goes with the cosmos, cosmos with the earth, and the whole thing is triggered by the word of God. In fact, nothing can make more plain the fact that this fire is different than that. I mean, how could an event, an ordinary natural event that destroys the earth, how could it destroy the cosmos? No, it's set on fire by God. In fact, that's the original Greek expression in verse 12 here, where it says that we look forward and we hasten the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, literally in the Greek, being set on fire. Now, I wish that that literal element had actually been brought out in the translation. In other words, translation is not wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just that there's an aspect that you wish had, had been brought out. It's very explicit in the Greek. Being set on fire. So it's not just something that happens. It's, there's an agent. God says burn. And it burns. Not that long ago, a few decades ago, the general consensus was that the sun would eventually cool and the earth would freeze and that's the end. In recent years, because believe it or not, science is fashionable, like clothes and everything else, the recent theory is that the sun will grow and expand and instead of freezing, the earth will actually burn. Well, that's getting closer to the truth. But the earth doesn't burn because of the sun's expansion. It burns because God sets it on fire. And God sets it on fire because it's a judgment. Remember, as we saw in the morning, the earth is not just preserved in grace, it is reserved for judgment. Remember both these things. I explained them in the morning. Don't need to do so again tonight. Preserved in grace, simultaneously reserved in judgment. And it isn't just the earth that is destroyed. You'll notice in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, in the final clause, it says that both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, what are the works that are in it? I suppose in some ways you would ask a, a more basic question first. If the earth is destroyed, why specify the works that are in it? I mean, if, if the whole thing is going to become a molten mass again, then why specify that the works that are in it are going to be destroyed? Well, I think there is one reason for that, and one reason only. It's just to emphasise to us that everything that looks so grand and spectacular, uh, all man's and woman's achievements and attainments are all brought to nothing. To nothing. In art, architecture, culture, engineering, the building of massive dams, spaceships, the whole lot, it's incinerated and it's reduced to ashes. Just at God's command and will. We think these things are wonderful. And in a sense, 
to the extent that they're done to the glory of God and shadow his creative power, because God, after all, is the creator endowed us with creative power. Insofar as they shadow that, fair enough. But insofar as they speak of our attainments and our glory and our advance and our civilization, burn it, consume it. It's full of sin, it's full of unbelief. This world is cursed, it carries the curse. God will extricate from it what is good and he will burn up the rest. That's the world in which we live. And if, if you are not a Christian, that's the world you're identifying with. And that is the world whose destiny you'll share if, if you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, these things are vast. Pardon the pun, they're cosmic in their significance. Absolutely so for you and for me. Are we with God or with the world? Are we with the believers or the unbelievers? Are we Christians or not Christians? Are we living or dead? Heaven bound or hell bound? So it's a reminder of how temporary our achievements are and how insignificant they are in the long term. You know, a day will come... um, when everybody will look back on these achievements and say, well, what was that in the light of eternity, in the light, in the light of the ultimate realities? What were these things? Were they worth glorying? What is the effect of this last day on us? What's it supposed to make us feel or think? Well, the answer to that is, of course, again, something that needs to be done in context. This coming of Christ and this destruction of the cosmos is followed by two great events. The renewal of heaven and earth and the final judgment. Take first the renewal of heaven and earth. In verse 13, we're told that nevertheless, in spite of these burnings, We, and here he's speaking of the Lord's people, according to his promise. Now, he promised destruction. Here he's promising reconstruction. And one is as sure as the other. One is as sure as the other. According to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. From the ashes of the cosmos, God remakes another one, carrying no sin whatsoever, not even carrying the effects and the scars of sin. Now, I'm conscious that some don't agree with that uh, theory that the the cosmos is renewed, and I speak of I speak of them with respect. They, they don't believe that that's how we should understand quite the new heavens and the new earth. But I think there are strong biblical arguments for saying that that's exactly what God means. The first reason why I'm saying that the new cosmos is a reconstruction of the old one is because, to put it in a contemporary way, God doesn't do annihilation. The concept of annihilation does not appear anywhere in the Bible. Oh, friends, there are some people who wish it did. You find them even in evangelical circles. They'll say to you, well, I believe that 
the souls of unbelievers will be annihilated. Won't find that in the Bible. Won't find that in the Bible. In fact, the whole concept of annihilation, as I said, just doesn't appear in the Bible. What God creates is here to stay. It may change. It may morph. It's here to stay. Matter is here to stay. Spirit is here to stay. Nothing gets annihilated. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that the Greek word used for new here is a specific word. There are two words for new. One means what we would call brand new. For example, if you got rid of your car and got another car, that's a brand new car. The other word means renewed. So if your car was a mess and you got it made up, you got a new car. It's renewed. Now it's the word renewed that's used here for a new heaven and a new earth. And you know what struck me, actually? This is the way the Bible is. This never struck me before until I I gave out the psalm to be sung. The reason I gave out Psalm 102 was another reason. But this struck me when I was reading it, that as vestures thou shalt change them so, they shall all be changed, sure. Um, The the idea is, is more of transformation, There is a change. Uh, Things alter. God certainly alters the universe. Not brand new, but something that was there already. Take also ourselves. When we are reborn, all of us, we're new creatures. But there's a continuity in that. You're still you. You've been born again, but you're still you. Um, It's the same soul that, that was dead in trespasses and sins, that is now alive and living to God. He's just renovated it. He's regenerated that soul. He's cleansed that soul. He's purified it. He didn't take it out of you and put another one in. You wouldn't be you anymore. It's just a new you, but it's still you. That's what's happening here. Same universe, not the same universe. And is this not the Apostle Paul's teaching? There are these verses in Romans. Now, they're difficult verses, but isn't it interesting that Peter says in connection, he says that Paul wrote in these things some things that are hard to understand, he says. That's what Peter said. And he's referring to this. Peter, Paul, sorry, in Romans 8, speaks about the whole creation being subjected to vanity. Right? So the... Creation as we know it was made pure by God. Time's my enemy all the time. And I'm sorry if I'm speaking too fast, but I'm trying to cover the ground. The whole creation was subject to futility or to vanity because of sin. But Paul says that God subjected it like that in hope. What kind of hope? Well, he says, the creation itself will be delivered from corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Because we know, he says, that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs, a strange expression, until now. And we groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our body. 
Notice the connection of the thought. As Christians, we're groaning. Groaning with ourselves. Very often frustrated with ourselves. More frustrated, actually, with ourselves than we are with anyone or anything else. But you're waiting for this purification to be complete. Your liberation, your redemption to be complete. Well, Paul says, so is the whole creation. Um, Earthquakes, volcanoes, deserts, vast swathes of deserts. That's an earth. That's not like it came forth from God's hand. There was no desert when God made it. No volcanoes. Nothing like that. But the whole earth, he says, is groaning, waiting for its own redemption. Now, what can that possibly mean? Except that it's part of the great renewal when God remakes heaven and earth. That's why the Psalms often end with pictures of the whole earth welcoming the Lord. The trees sing. The seas sing. Um, Poetry, yes, but poetry has meaning. And the meaning of the poetry is that the planet will be renewed by God when the meek shall at last inherit the earth. You wonder sometimes, when does that beatitude come through? That blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is when it comes through. When God makes a new world wherein righteousness dwells. Now you respond to that as an unbeliever. You respond to that by thinking of, well, am I going to be part of that or not? After all, there is a judgment to determine who dwells there and who doesn't in the new cosmos of God because outside the new cosmos there's a a place that's always been there and it always will be there. Even when God's renewed the cosmos, there is an outer darkness. That's how Christ describes it. People speak of multiverses. Well, here's your multiverse. There is another place, a dark place, a bleak, desolate, awful place. And if you're not in God's new cosmos, you are there. You are there. And the thought of the judgment putting you there should be something that strikes you, your heart with fear. Fear. These things are not stories or theories. This is not a philosophy. This is a divine revelation, friends. This is a divine revelation of truth. It's not a human speculation of origins and possible consequences. This is a divine revelation of truth. And if God will judge you and me, and if that is our destiny, well, as Paul says, it is the terror of the Lord. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, before what he calls the terror of the Lord. And The call to you then is that call that we saw in the morning in verse 19 to recognize that God is still preserving you and preserving this world in his great grace and kindness so that you will not perish but that you will come to repentance. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, verse 9. He's not slow in bringing the world to its end but he is simply long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you're a Christian, 
How do you view this day? Well, yes, you believe in it, but second, you expect it. You hope for it. You anticipate it. You're not afraid, in a certain sense, of the judgment seat. No, not at all. Those who have gone to glory aren't afraid of the judgment seat. They are already arrayed in white. They know who they are and who they always will be. And if we are in Christ too, we know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we have committed to him against that day. We know that. By being justified by faith, we're not under condemnation. And we look forward to seeing this new cosmos that will be full of God's glory. The new Jerusalem that will be located there and the tabernacle of God. And we hope for it. Four times Peter uses the expression looking for or looking forward to. Um, we're about to pass into a new year and I'm sure we look forward to different, for, to different things. Uh, as I'll, I'll say tomorrow, God, what shall we look forward, all right? Uh, what is it that we look forward to? Well, here's what the believer looks forward to. Four times, he says, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Someone mentioned to me this morning after the service that these things are not maybe in the hearts of the Lord's people as they should be. I think that is true. I think judgment, the last things, a new heaven and a new earth are not enough in the sight of the Lord's people, myself included. We live too much in the world, sometimes as though we were of it. But you look forward to it because your redemption draws nigh. And as well as that, you hasten this day in verse 12. You look for and you hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, you can't bring this day forward. So it seems strange to say that you can hasten it. In fact, some people think that the meaning is that you hasten towards it. Um, not so... Uh, the King James is, and, and the Gallic version too, uh, puts it the same way, that you are hastening towards it. But the Greek expression is actually different from that, slightly different. What it says is that um, you are hastening the day. Our catechism goes with that, hastening the Lord's coming. The shorter catechism, when it says, what do you pray when you pray thy kingdom come? One of the things it says is that you are hastening the coming of the Lord's kingdom. So the catechism is, is more strict uh, to, to the Greek behind here. But it raises the question, how do you hasten it? Well, you hasten it in this sense um, because the Lord says that what happens when these events occur is that the, the people want it to happen and the people pray for it to happen. And the people expect it to happen and they long for it to happen. And in that respect, by doing so, you are hastening the advent of that day. In effect, I suppose what it's doing is pulling us towards the day. But it's hastening the day for us. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the church prays. And when the church really prays that, the Lord Jesus will come. That's what it means by hastening it. Last of all, and extremely briefly, as, long as, as well as hoping for it, 
we walk in the light of it. And really, um, it's not right almost to, to mention this without doing it justice, but that's all I've got to do. It, it does say in verse 11, since all these things will be dissolved, what kind of people you should be in holy conduct and in godliness. And again, verse 14, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that to you the Lord's long-suffering is salvation. It's time for you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's no wonder that he closes the letter in verse 18 by saying, Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 2023, as far as we know, has not seen the advent of the Lord. But one day it will come. Are you ready and am I? Let's close our service by <clears throat> singing in Psalm 104, the great creation psalm, or one of the great creation psalms in the Bible. And... Uh, We'll sing the last four stanzas. Earth, as a frightened, trembleth all, if he on it but look. What a thought that is. If he just looks at it, it trembles. And if the mountains he but touch, they presently do smoke. And then he closes the psalm by saying, I will sing to the Lord Most High so long as I shall live. And while I being have, I shall to my God praises give. Let, let's follow him in that resolution to, to praise and glorify him. Of him my meditation shall sweet thoughts to me afford. And as for me, I will rejoice in God, my only Lord. And notice how he suddenly looks forward to a renewed earth. From earth let sinners be consumed. Let evil men no more be. Now, this isn't so much that he's wanting the destruction of anybody as such. What he is wanting is the purity and the peace of godliness and holiness, which the Lord's people desire. So thou, my soul, bless thou the Lord. Praise to the Lord give ye. The last four stanzas, let's stand and sing them.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.